0: listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So today we're going to take a look at a film called The Green Mile. Now, if you're unfamiliar with it, it was written by Stephen King. Uh, yes, that's Stephen King. So the Stephen King, who's kind of known for a kind of horror writing, uh, is also known for another genre that he kind of writes in sometimes, and it's a bit of a, a prison genre. So uh, King wrote *Shawshank Redemption*, which is a very kind of famous book and famous movie. In the movie, it was uh, the main characters were played by Tim Robbins and by Morgan Freeman. *The Green Mile* may be a little less famous. Uh, tells a story, and it's it's one that I want to share with you. It's kind of, it's set uh, kind of in the early 20th century. Um, it looks like they're driving kind of Model T's or some version thereof. It's set in the south, and it's set in a prison. And the title, Green Mile, comes from a variation of the last mile. So death row at Sing Sing uh, is called the last mile, meaning it kind of, the it's the space between uh, where prisoners would be held and where they would be executed. But in this particular kind of fictional prison, uh, that that uh, death row, the floor had been uh, painted green, and so it, it, it took its name from that, kind of the Green Mile. So one of the main characters in the story is played by Tom Hanks, and he is kind of the, the head guard of the Green Mile, and he oversees a staff of guards. And there's a character in the story, a man who's on death row, whose name is John Coffey. He's played by Michael Clark Duncan, if you if you know that that character actor. Um, so Michael Clark Duncan's character is uh, has been charged for a very heinous crime, the death of of two uh, young sisters, and you see other characters there on death row, but his character, uh, Duncan's character, uh, John Coffey, is is an innocent, like he's completely innocent. He's been wrongly charged, and at some point uh, in the film, we realize that, and not only do we realize it, but also this Tom Hanks character, Paul Edgecombe, the the head guard, he realizes it too. And as the story unfolds, we see a lot of of life. We see more than life, I think, though, because I think John Coffey's character is to the Green Mile what Jesus is to the Gospels. He's the Christ figure. He's the Messianic one. And a lot of our uh, films and a lot of our fiction that we read, that we watch, uh, we often kind of long for a hero, kind of a hero who comes and saves the day, a hero who can come and kind of kill our enemies and save us. But there's there's another whole approach to how to tell a story, and that's where it's not so much a hero as it is a saint, and the one who comes doesn't come and kill, kills, but the one comes and dies. And we see this quite a bit, too, uh, in films like Armageddon with uh, Bruce Willis. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, they're going to save the world from an asteroid. Uh, spoiler alert on this, of course. But Bruce, Bruce Willis' character ends up staying behind. He sends Ben Affleck home. Uh, to be with, his, with his, um, his wife and Bruce Willis's daughter. And he, he dies, but in the process of dying he kind of saves the world. That story is also fairly common in, in films where the hero is not an anti-hero, a true hero, but is a tragic hero instead of a victorious one. And in the tragedy though, salvation is provided. It's those stories where the hero dies that I think we're actually getting closer to the gospel story. Because in the gospel story, Jesus doesn't come and conquer anyone or not in any kind of traditional way, not the way of an emperor or a general or a king. Jesus doesn't ride in on a war horse into Jerusalem with an army. He rides in on a donkey with you know a, a small group of disciples. But back to the Green Mile, there's a scene that I want to show you. So on the Green Mile, there, there was Tom Hanks' character who's, who is the head guard. There's another guard who's kind of a horrific person. In fact, he's one of the worst characters in the story. It's played very well, but it's a character that, that we're, we're, we're kind of encouraged to dislike. Because, I don't know, his humanity is thin. He's so absorbed in himself and he's just trying to get ahead, and he has relationships with the governor through his mother. And so um, his, his position is one that he's kind of easy to dislike. One of the characters is a death row um, inmate, and um, he's very Cajun. His character name... Oh, I just forgot his character name. I, I just looked it up. His character name was Edward Delacroix, or Delacroix, Delacroix, Delacroix? Delacroix, maybe. I'm not sure, I should, I should look up my, my Cajun. Um, it's played by Michael Jeter. Um, so he's, he's a little bit, he's a little simple too. His accent is kind of hard to understand. I wish we could have had maybe some subscripts here when we watch this. But he has befriended a mouse that was in the prison. And he's kind of named the mouse Mr. Jingles, and he's taught the mouse some um, some tricks. And so now the, the guards who are, are full of humanity and trying to treat these people well before they die um, have kind of promised to take care of the mouse. But then in this scene, we're going to see something that Percy, kind of the evil guard does, and we're also going to see John Coffey's the 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 character who i think is the is the christ figure how he responds to the evil that percy does and then i'll come back and we'll talk some more about this and connect it to isaiah 53 and the gospel of mark so you see kind of in that clip that coffee has kind of supernatural abilities right this is kind of the paranormal that maybe not be that uncommon in some of King's writings, that what you see is not all that there is. There's more to life than just things that are physical. There are things that are spiritual. And those spiritual things kind of both permeate life, they're in it, but they also seem to be beyond it as well. So at multiple times throughout the film, we'll see Coffee exert his, his capacity to absorb evil to absorb um, pain, or sickness, or death even, and then, although it seems to hurt him, it doesn't ultimately hurt him, he can, it doesn't, it doesn't damage him uh, irreparably, right? He's able to process it and then just kind of let it go. So at one point in the film, he heals the wife of the warden. At this point, right, he's healing the mouse and kind of bringing him back to life. Another point: Tom Hanks' character is suffering severely from a kidney stone, and, and he touches him and and relieves it. Um, and then, in a, in a fourth scene, he will he will hold um, he will hold Tom Hanks' hand and kind of impart to him a knowledge about how the two little girls actually did die, the ones that Coffee is being held responsible for, even though even though he's innocent. The thing of, the thing about it is, coffee ends up in the film. Again, spoiler alert: he ends up in the film being executed by the state. Um, though both Tom Hanks' character and the mouth, the mouse, end up with kind of unnaturally long lives. In fact, we see them kind of late twentieth century. Both of them kind of living much longer than a natural life would have allowed them to live because somehow John Coffey has imparted part of himself into them. He did it with, them, with Mr. Jingles, the mouse, when he kind of raised him from the dead, and then he did it again with Tom Hanks' character, not when he healed them, but when he imparted a bit of his knowledge about the way in which the world kind of really works. So what does this have to do with Isaiah 53 and Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant? Or how we might understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, this is what I think is, is, is happening. When Jesus hits the scene, like in the Gospel of Mark, we know from the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, that this is a story about Jesus. And we know two things about Jesus. We know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and we know that he's the Son of God. So this is Mark 1, 1 says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. So that's saying two separate things about Jesus. It's saying that he's the Messiah, and it's saying that he's the Son of God. However, the characters in the story don't seem to know what the readers of the Gospel know. So um, people who see Jesus, his disciples, other characters like the mother-in-law of Peter or the man with a withered hand or the friends that bring uh, their para- the four friends who bring their fifth paralyzed friend to Jesus. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, no one else really seems to quite understand who Jesus is. And he's called by all sorts of titles. You know, he's called rabbi, and he's called, you know, um, teacher or sir. Um, they, they, they call him different things. It is interesting, the only ones who seem to know who Jesus is, other than the readers of the gospel are the um, evil spirits. The unclean spirits are like, Son of the Most High, why have you come to torment us before our time? And Jesus is like, would you guys be quiet? (laughs) I've got work here to do. So when people do recognize more so who Jesus is, and we're about halfway through the gospel at this point, Jesus will say to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they respond, well, some say you're, Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, well, what about you all? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So no one up until that point has identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. I mean, again, as the readers, we know this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But again, the characters in the story don't seem to know. Until Peter says, you are the Christ, and now it's like the cat's out of the bag. It's like, not only does Peter made this confession, but now this confession has become somewhat kind of public knowledge. Now, Jesus seems, though, to resist that identity. That's the first time he's identified as the Christ, but it won't be the last time. And each time somebody says something about him being the Christ, he says something about the Son of Man a character that he's been talking about from the very beginning. Like Jesus had um, forgiven a person's sins. It was the, the, the paralyzed man who was, who was lowered through the roof. Jesus forgave that person's sins and the religious leaders said, hey, that's out of bounds. That's out of bounds. Uh, that's out of bounds. You, can't, you can't do that. Forgiveness of sins is only for God. And he says, well, which is easier to say, Uh, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk. So he tells the man to rise up and walk, and then Jesus says this. He says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so apparently, this Son of Man, uh, that Jesus is identifying himself as, has authority to forgive sins, and, as we'll see later, uh, three times after, after Peter says you are the Christ, three times Jesus will predict his death, But every time Jesus predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. But he predicts it, not saying that I will die, but again with this self-designation of the Son of Man. So Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and die and on the third day be raised again. And it's like his disciples are like, what's he talking about? (laughs) Who's he talking about? And what Jesus seems to be doing is he seems to be borrowing some imagery out of Daniel, where this Son of Man character seems to be this angelic figure who kind of comes at the, end of the at the end of time to kind of judge the world. But then, and this seems to be unique to Mark, because I've read a lot of, of Second Temple Jewish literature and a lot of early Christian literature, and I can't quite find anywhere else anyone else holding these, eyes to, holding these ideas together except for Jesus. So Jesus seems to take this this imagery of what the coming Messiah might look like out of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the one who's bruised for our iniquities and the chastisements of our sins are upon him and by his stripes we're healed. The idea that the chosen one will die as opposed to the chosen one will conquer. And Jesus takes that idea of the suffering servant out of Isaiah 53, and he, he weds it to this idea of the Son of Man, who has authority on earth to forgive sins, the Son of Man who will come at the, end of, at the end of the age to kind of judge the world. And that's how he identifies himself. I mean, it's remarkable that every time Jesus uses a phrase to identify himself, he uses the phrase Son of Man, and yet... No one else seems to pick up on that. The early church doesn't pick up on it. We don't find it in the book of Acts. We don't find it in the early creeds. Like, we still say Jesus Christ. We don't say Jesus, the Son of Man. <laughs> Even at, at, at his arrest, Jesus will be standing before the high priest. And the high priest will ask him a question. Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Right. Are you the Son of God, is what he's asking And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds and seated seated at the right hand of power. And the high priest kind of tears his clothes. He's, He's sorrowful and he's angry. How could any human being make such a claim? Right? So Jesus is kind of claiming all these things, but he's claiming it in such a way to kind of, I think, challenge our expectation. So to say that Jesus is the Christ, again, he never says, yes, you're right, I'm the Christ. He always says, well, the Son of Man will do this or that. And I think it's because their expectation of what the Christ would be is not how he understood himself as the Christ. Their expectation of what the Christ would be is one who would come and conquer with power, right, with authority. It would, it would involve some kind of military power to overthrow the, the government. Um, in this case, it would be the Romans. It would have some kind of economic power and some kind of political power and some kind of like, religious or spiritual power. But Jesus doesn't come that way. Even when it says that he's the Son of God, right? He doesn't take that title and say, oh yeah, you're right. He says, well, the Son of Man has the authority to do this, that, or the other. Because for him both our visions of what a deliverer would look like and even our visions of what God would look like are off base, right? They're, they're skewed. And so he's showing us himself and then he's basically saying, look at me and see how I am and then you'll know both what who the Messiah is, who the Christ is, and who God is, Right? And so he says this, this is in Mark chapter 10, he says, the Son of Man comes not to uh, be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there, I think, we really get this kind of perfect picture of who Christ is. We know, of course, that Christ does die on a cross, and we know that God raises him from the dead. But we often tell this story in ways that I think are unhelpful. We tell it in ways that somehow makes it sound like God needed Jesus to die in order to do something. Right? We'll say something on the order, well, you know, Jesus had to die so our sins would be forgiven. Jesus died as he forgave our sins. It wasn't God who needed Jesus to die. I want to be clear on this. It's not God who's saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's the crowd who says, crucify him. God raises Jesus from the dead. If you want to hear what God is saying, listen to Jesus Christ on the cross as he's being crucified. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's the voice of God. We see the death in the death of Jesus on the cross. We see love perfected. No greater love has this than a man who will lay his down his life for his friends. In this case, Jesus is not just laying down his life for his friends, he's laying down his life for his enemies. So on the cross, we see God's perfect love. We will see God's justice, but we don't see God's justice on the cross. We see God's justice in the resurrection. When God resurrects Jesus from the dead, that is justice. Like we know that it it is unjust for an innocent person to be put to death. Can you agree with me there? Yeah? It is unjust for an innocent person to be put to death. If there ever was an innocent person That is Jesus. Jesus is the innocent person. And so when the government of Rome puts him to death, and when the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem wants him to be put to death, again, Caiaphas, who had said, are you the son of the blessed one, would say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Right? When they want Jesus to die, and when they do put Jesus to death, that is unjust, But what God does in response to that is to resurrect Jesus and in so deal with sin and with death so that we see the cross is not something God needs in order to forgive. Jesus had been walking around Galilee forgiving people's sins. If we say the cross was needed for God to forgive, we're making the same mistake that the Pharisees made when they told Jesus, hey, wait a minute, you can't forgive sins. That's God alone who can. And he said, well, you know, who can, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. When Jesus said people's sins were forgiven, you know what? Their sins were forgiven. (laughs) That's That's the way that works. So what we have then is that in the cross, on the cross, Jesus does not change God's mind about us. On the cross, Jesus can change our mind about God. I want to say that again. On the cross, Jesus does not change God's mind about us. God already knows who we are. On the cross, Jesus changes our mind about God so that God is on the cross enduring it as He forgives. God is on the cross, enduring death as He forgives. And what gets revealed is that our God, the only God, the God who created all things, the God who made us, is also the God who forgives. And God is just. And we see God's justice again in the resurrection of Jesus. And God is just in that he can, he can deal with evil in the same way, interestingly enough, that John Coffey in this film can deal with evil. He can deal with evil in such a way that evil itself can't have an impact on him. The rest of us, when we kind of come in contact with evil, it, it impacts us, it, it dements us, it deforms us, it has this... Very negative impact on us. That's what sin will do to us. It will, it will deform us. It will, it will dehumanize us. Like when we say that an action is inhumane. To say an action is inhumane meaning it's not, it's not human. It's not, it's not a human way to be, behave. Right? Because the human way to behave is to behave in the image and likeness of God. That's how we were made. That's why we call unjust acts or evil acts inhumane, right? It's inhumane of Percy to kind of stomp on Mr. Jingles. It it is human. It is is God-like to forgive and to give life. And that's exactly what uh, Mr. Jingles does. In the Gospel of Mark, again, readers know from the very beginning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, But the characters in the story are learning. And they're learning that he is the Christ, as Peter says, but they're learning something more, that the Christ and eventually the Son of God um, is not what they would have thought. Who it is is, again, the suffering servant. The one who came not to be served but to, to serve. And at the very end of the story, at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, finally, what the readers knew from verse 1, a character in the story knows. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, a character in the story looks up at him and says, Surely this is the Son of God. That is on the lips of a Roman soldier. An executioner, a guard at a state execution, someone who had walked the last mile with Jesus. Very much like Paul Edgecombe, um, Tom Hanks' character, right? He's working for the state, he's working at this place the last mile, except here it's the green mile. And and this is a way in which color, I think, is being used in the film to show us something more than just some kind of novelty. The fact that this last mile has been painted green, green is the uh, color of life. And so this last mile is not just the end of people who've done bad things and now are paying their debt to society. This is the green mile. Because on it, J.C., John Coffey, it's a little bit on your nose, but not too bad, right? That the Jesus Christ character is named JC. <laughs> so John Coffey, an innocent one, is going to kind of give his life and in the process, give life to others. I want to, I want to show you one last, one last clip from the film here. And you'll we'll see an interaction between coffee and Paul. That is uh, um, Michael Duncan's character and uh, Tom Hanks. I'm tired, boss. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the the suffering. I'm tired of all the troubles in the world. Man, I can feel that. John Coffey is uh, I mean, there's a lot of great um, allegories and Um, depictions of Christ-like figures in fiction and film. I mean, some of them, you know, like Aslan and C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Aragorn and Tolkien's uh, The Return of the King. I mean, they're good, and and I like them. I don't know that there is one that I like better than John Coffey. His innocence, his love... His capacity both to absorb evil and not return it, but to return it with love, and his willingness just to kind of give of his life. Like, that's a pretty good depiction. I mean, I, I get it that it's that it's fiction. Um, and, uh, I mean, having, having read and seen some other stuff by Stephen King, I too, I'm a little surprised that this is at the hand of Stephen King, but... Um, but I think it's I think it's remarkable, and I think it um, not unlike the Gospel of Mark, uh, we have characters here again in this story that come to a realization of to who God is, and therefore how we should live, and that's my hope for us that while we do this partially because it's fun, but we also do this as a way of kind of opening our eyes in new ways to see things perhaps we haven't seen before and that that is our prayer we hope you were blessed by today's podcast if you liked what you heard and want to support us you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts you can leave us a review on iTunes and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially you can go to oasischurch.org may the Lord bless you and keep you And may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.